Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School Headquarters Podcast, session number 158. Hello and welcome to the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Now, this week, I have a very special guest with me, another podcaster, another physician podcaster. This week, I'm talking to Patty Barrett. Now, Patty is with two Ds. He uh, is an Irishman, as you will hear during the interview. But he has an amazing podcast, and we'll talk all about it when we dig in. Let's welcome Patty. Patty, welcome to the Medical School Headquarters podcast. Thanks for joining me. Ryan, it's fantastic to be on your show. I want to know when you first realized you wanted to be a physician. Um, I know this sounds incredibly cliche, but for, for, I think my original career path was I wanted to be a candle maker and that's going back as far as five and then a pilot and then a lawyer. Um, so obviously a very diverse portfolio of thoughts, but very oddly, I, now this sounds so cliched. I had a dream that I was interviewing a physician on ward rounds and asking him, what was it like to be a physician? And the next morning I woke up and I went, I think I want to be a doctor. And it sounds very strange, but maybe it was something that was going through my head. And it wasn't so uh, much later on um, that, that that actually happened. Um, but that was kind of, I think, the one of the initiating events for why I actually wanted to be a physician. Uh, that's kind of interesting because most dreams come from some sort of real life experiences. Did you have any exposure to healthcare or medicine at that point? Not, not, not in um, and in a direct sense. But outside, outside of being, you know, a, a patient from time to time, and my neighbor was also our our, our GP. Um, but um, you know, after I had made that uh, decision, or not decision, or, or after that actually had had come into my uh, my head, I, I ended up in a scenario whereby, very tragically, um, uh, someone died, and I remember. Um, 
watching the the fire crew um, look and you know that this person is clearly dead and I realized that I really had no idea what to do in that situation um, you know even now I, I, what I would have known is that there was nothing that you could do but the the horror of actually not knowing what to do was something that I found very difficult to to deal with and I kind of promised from that day forward um, that I would never find myself in the situation where I wouldn't know what to do and to be able to take control of that situation. So I think, you know, the, the original thoughts of being a physician and then compounded by that situation um, kind of certainly set me on a, on a very firm path to being a physician. And how old were you around this time? Um, at the time, I was about 18 years old. Um, and it was at home um, where uh, somebody had drowned and uh, we had uh, taken them out of the water. Um, but I, I remember being being very affected by that. Yeah, as would anybody, I would, I would assume. Now, you don't have a, a New Jersey accent. Uh, you're from uh, Ireland, it is? I am from Ireland. I'm I'm somewhat of a a medical nomad. Um, I I did my uh, all my medical school training uh, in Ireland. Um, I I worked in Ireland and did an internship um, in medicine and surgery in Ireland for a year, and then spent um, the best part of a year in in Australia, where I had originally started out um, as a as a cardiothoracic um, surgical trainee, and uh, I had you know had gone to australia really just to explore that possibility and also work in um in emergency medicine and also use that time to do things like train to be a pilot and then return back to ireland to you know to the sense that you know i actually wanted to be a cardiologist instead um and started my medical school training there embarked on the the early days of my um my cardiology fellowship training and then um did some two years of, of research training um, at, at Scripps in California, and then did a, an interventional cardiology fellowship in Columbia and New York. And now I'm back in Scripps in California enjoying the sunshine. <laughs> San Diego. Lovely San Diego. Yes. That's awesome. What, what was it like? Uh, you've obviously been exposed to American healthcare now for a while. What was... Uh, medical school like in Ireland? What was that process like applying to medical school and going through that process? So it's actually, um, it's actually quite different. Um, uh, firstly, um, uh, medical school and, and, and all, um, higher level education, um, if it's your first pass is, is effectively free. Um, you pay, you know, a, an annual fee of a couple hundred dollars as part of your registration. But, Beyond that, uh, your your costs for medical school are free. In terms of application, we go directly from high school into medical school. We don't do um, an undergraduate degree. And the kind of slight trade-off of that is that medical school is approximately six years in duration, where the first two years are focused on basic sciences. And then the additional years uh, move much towards uh, more medical specialties and, and clinical specialties and then your your clinical attachments. In terms of applying and getting into medical school, um, again, this has changed a little um, at home, but at the time it was based on, we do an examination called your, your leaving certificate. And what that is, is you do six subjects and based on the 
marks you get in those subjects, you get a cumulative score. And then there is a very kind of straightforward, almost supply and demand economics matching system, whereby if you have enough points to get into a certain um, field or which you have applied to, um, you get in. It's not based on any other applications in terms of your suitability, based on um, any kind of letters of reference or, or people who would facilitate that process for you. It was simply down to a numeric um, qualification as to whether you exceeded the threshold for the requirements of that year. Wow, that could be frustrating. Um, it, it, it was frustrating uh, in a sense, um, but you knew that... You know, you you basically had to get uh, straight A's in in all your your six subjects. Um, but if you were able to do that, you were relatively assured of of getting in. It it has changed now because they want to move the system away from that. In so far as your your marks actually are influential, but you don't have to get straight A's in all your subjects. You have to then match it with um, an additional examination that is tailored towards um, your your application to, to medical school. But the, the country itself, um, Ireland, has struggled a little bit in terms of how best to go about selecting its medical trainees. Um, they want to keep the... Um, the idea that, you know, if you just put in the work, you can get in, but also integrate the ideas of, of selecting people who were suitable. And I think maybe the historical rationale for that was to to eliminate any nepotism in terms of facilitating people's entry into medical school. Yeah. And what was it like as a, a foreign medical grad or international medical grad, they're now called, to to come to the U.S. and, and practice medicine? It's it, it is very strange. And I, you know, I think when you you spend say six years in medical school and your exposure to to medicine is is in one country, you you think that there there's only one way of practicing medicine. And when I moved to Australia, for example, you see that it's practiced differently. Um, and not necessarily that everything is better or worse, but it's just different. And you begin to see, kind of different elements of healthcare, how they could be helpful to your own country's um, delivery of healthcare, and certain things that, you know, that maybe we did better. In terms of um, the U.S. Uh, approach, it was, um, it was rather different. Um, I think the, the idea that, you know, at times maybe people were looking at how they would uh, do diagnostic testing or procedures based on the idea of, you know, looking at generating RVUs and not saying that that was happening in kind of a blatant sense, but there was a, there was certainly a flavor of that. And that was certainly very foreign to me in terms of at home, you basically did what was needed. You were not rewarded for doing more work. Um, you were rewarded for doing what was required um, to the highest level. Um, so there was never any motivation to to see patients in an additional level or do things or do diagnostic testing just to, you know, bump your RVUs, for example. Lovely RVUs. Uh -huh. <laughs> on, on your journey through medical school and, and then coming to the States, what, what was one of the, the biggest obstacles that you had to overcome? Um, the, it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge as, as an international medical graduate um, moving from your your training abroad to to training here 
And one of, I mean, I'm often asked repeatedly by people at home to give advice on how you make that transition. And I think you firstly have to say, you know, if you think you want to go to the United States um, to practice medicine, you don't want to go. You have to through and through want to transition to the United States um, because the, the obstacles are, are many and varied. Um, you have everything from the recognition of your medical school training, whether it comes from uh, you're, you're from an accredited list of medical schools. You have the idea that your, your later training will not be recognized in terms of your residency equivalent because it is not ACGME equivalent. So in a lot of schools' eyes, you actually haven't completed any higher level training, irrespective of what exams or, or level you've gotten to. You have the idea of your um, your visa. Um, things have become much more challenging now in terms of the types of visas you will get and how long that you can stay. One of the, the major challenges for international medical graduates coming to the United States is most visas are on a, a J-1 visa with what's called a two-year home rule, and which basically means you're stating at the start that your training is is only that. It's a training so that you can return home to provide and practice in your home country and that you cannot return to the United States without leaving the country for, for two years. So you have to deal with the visa issue. Um, additional to that, if you haven't done um, an ACGME accredited residency, um, you are not board eligible. And if you're not board eligible, you can't sit your boards. And then that runs into difficulties in terms of the jobs that are available to you and, and what insurance that you can use. So I think people need to understand all of these challenges up front. They're all manageable, but you need to have a very clear picture of what you're taking on. You know, it's it's interesting. We're having this discussion now. Just just a couple days ago, somebody had asked the question in in our, our Facebook group, the the hangout, that they they saw a physician who's credentialed with MDDO. And they said, why why would somebody want to get both degrees? And the answer, uh, I knew the answer right away. It's that that person most likely got their MD at a foreign uh, medical school, did their training somewhere else, and had a hard time getting into the system here and just decided to go back to medical school because that's that was the easiest route. So it's, it's interesting. Do, do you think that from now that you're kind of integrated into the U.S. system, do you think we should make it easier for international medical graduates to come into the country to practice? I think it's a, it's difficult because it depends on the, the needs of of U.S. healthcare, um, and that's kind of how all visas, etc., are are set up. Um, and this is kind of how it you know it is is presented is that. They will. The, the American uh, training systems will say we have enough to fulfill our requirements, and um, you know, unless you're willing to jump through our hoops, uh, we will just take from our own internal pool. But it's clear that um, there are growing areas of need um, in the United States, particularly within, say, primary healthcare and other areas of unmet needs, that would really benefit from a carefully selected group of, of people who come from international medical schools. And I certainly think that those barriers have to be relaxed to fill the needs um, in a suitable way um, for, for medical practitioners uh, in the United States. Um, what I think, you know, so I think definitely, I think there needs to be an, an easing of 
the criteria um, that are required to to practice medicine in the United States as an international medical graduate. But I would certainly advise um, any early stage trainee who was very serious about practice in the United States is to really just engage with the accredited um, American training systems earlier rather than later. Because a lot of people find that when they have come at a later point in their training, that still possibly the best option is to go back and go from scratch and do a residency. Okay. So you're, you're in the U S now you're practicing and you've recently started a podcast, the doctor paradox. What was the, the impetus behind that? Well, I think, you know, partly it was an exploration of my own personal journeys and that was based out of the, the concept that, when you look at all the conventional metrics as to what makes a job satisfying, um, physicians really tick all those boxes. Um, we are someone who gets to be mobile. We operate at the kind of the top end of our license in a very kind of highly professional capacity. We meet people on a day-to-day basis. We facilitate and help people. We're generally fairly well compensated. And all of these together would would lead you to believe that, you know, the practice of medicine was something that would be very um, engaging and satisfying. Yet that was at odds with my personal experience in terms of the, the trainees and indeed physicians that I was meeting on a day-to-day basis. And many of them, not all, but many of them were very frustrated um, with their work, were very unhappy with their work. Um, a lot of them were, were suffering from burnout and a lot of them really were, were fearful for their future in terms of they didn't see things changing for them. They didn't see things improving and they were very scared in terms of how they would manage their choices. And a lot of this was based out of there was no formal infrastructure for people to engage with. Um, who were going through their medical school training or after medical school as to how best to think about their medical careers. And people did, you know, very good jobs in terms of being a mentor or asking advice of of more senior colleagues, but there was no formal structure there to engage with, to think about how you would um, piece together your training and, and what it meant. And additionally, they options that are commonly presented to um, early stage trainees um, seem rather limited. And it's to do primarily, I believe, with uh, people just not being exposed to other non-traditional practices of medicine. And when you actually broaden your view and you see that physicians have gone on to do many and varied things, including things like yourself, um, your menu of options increases hugely. And it gives you the opportunity then to practice at the top of your license of medicine, but also embrace other passions and interests that you have. And it allows you the the possibility that there are other things that you can do, either in separation or in combination with your practice of medicine. It's it's interesting. So it sounds like from from your experience, the the trainees, the other physicians that were going, that were having issues that weren't happy 
it sounds like from from your point of view, it was more that they they almost weren't uh, interpreting all of the data uh, correctly, or they didn't have an outlet to help them interpret all of the information. Uh, but I've I've seen the flip side where where people aren't happy with the money they're making, or they're they're working too hard. The whole uh, work life balance was off. Did you get a sense that there was some of that? that was was uh, making people unsatisfied absolutely and i think i think the the answer when you begin to deep dive is is very very multifactorial um it's not simply that that a system is awry and that the system needs to be changed. I think you have to be very diligent in terms of your own personal outlooks in terms of what your expectations are and I think much of you know, I think much of dissatisfaction in general in life is to do with expectation mismatch. And if you get your head around that in terms of that you can align those, your your expectations of what you're doing in life, you will open up many opportunities to be much happier and engaging on a day-to-day basis in terms of what you're doing. And I think, you know, this is something you see when when people pursue the field of medicine for financial remuneration primarily, their expectations of their monetary reward will be far less than they had ever anticipated. And they generally enter enter a spiral of, of dissatisfaction and th- they never get out of that. And it's it's impossible to readdress that unless you align up your your expectations and mismatches. Um, I think there are elements that that are very difficult and challenging to address. For example, the idea of say, chronic fatigue and, and, and sleep deprivation, you know, how do you manage that and have people operate on a, on a very high level when they're well-rested, but also deliver the highest level of training? Um, and Lots of as caffeine. We know, yeah, a, 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 lot, a lot of caffeine and kind of <laughs> stimulants. And, you know, the, the uh, you know, NASA astronauts and, and the fighter pilots do it, so, yeah. so why not us? But, you know, I think we all know that when you get a proper night's sleep, for example, you just feel a million times better and you act far, um, far better. And it's, it's trying to, to learn the structures of how you would do that and uh, being, being very careful, say, with your sleep hygiene can make a, a huge impact on the quality of your life and the quality of your day-to-day work. I, I challenge everybody listening to, to take the phones, take the TVs out of the bedroom and, and see what it's like to actually fall asleep without that uh, artificial light hitting your eyes. It's a, it's a challenge. I, you know, I, it's 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 a very difficult thing to do, but I think uh, it is one of the most valuable things. Um, I go through periods, and I'm not a, a saint at this, but I go through periods whereby I will take my phone. One of the, th- one of the things I would advise people to do is buy an alarm clock. And the reason I say that is because most people use their phone as an alarm clock. So. Take your phone, put it on airplane mode, silent, whatever, and leave it outside of your room and use a separate alarm clock to wake you and simply read a book. Um, now, the reality is, is all of us have read every article that appears in the Huffington Post or whatever in terms of how best to improve your sleep and improve your sleep hygiene. The problem is, is that very few of us actually adhere to those rules. But if you do, your sleep hygiene, even within the same hours of sleep that are available to you, will increase dramatically. And there's a lot of evidence to point that it's the quality of your sleep 
over the duration, obviously within certain thresholds, they will make a huge difference. And doing so, and I agree with you, taking your phone out of your room will, and, and your iPad will, will make a huge difference. Yeah. Through the podcast, you've been able to interview uh, many great leaders in healthcare. What have you learned from them that, that you can teach us about staying happy or, or going through the process without getting jaded? I think for me, there, there appears to be two themes. Um, one is even the people who are, you know, by, by all measures, just immensely successful. All of them struggled. All of them went through difficult times. All of them had low points whereby they really were unsure of themselves. So it's, it's reassuring to know that these people just didn't breeze through their training breeze through their practice and just nonchalantly find themselves in a place of immense success. All of them struggled. Secondly, all of them embraced their passions either within or beyond medicine. They were very true always to what it is that motivates them in life, um, be it from being an author um, to aviation to art it really doesn't matter if something is a passion for you. It is important that you either maintain it alongside your practice of medicine or that you integrate it. But it's by repressing and not giving yourself the opportunity to follow your heart in these activities. That's what leads to a lot of dissatisfaction because even though you may be practicing and be very successful in a clinical sense, you have not allowed yourself to pursue other passions and that makes people um, dissatisfied. So you have to follow your heart in that respect. There are more and more uh, studies coming out, more and more and more articles coming out about how physicians are just unhappy. Uh, physician suicide is skyrocketing. And yet on the flip side, the the AAMC just released new data that that every year we keep breaking records for the number of students applying to medical school. What can you say to to these students that are that are more than likely getting advice from burnt out physicians not to enter the career field? What can you say to them to to let them know that it's it's still okay to to do this? I think. The reason for that is that, that being a physician will always be one of the most privileged positions that you, you, can, you can hold. And I don't think that will ever be taken away. Um, the opportunities that you get to intersect um, with people's lives uh, during times of great need and that you can help them during that time um, is one of the most amazing positions any human being can ever be in. Um, the challenge is, is that by engaging with that process, you set yourself on a very arduous course and a lot of people will fall foul to being burnt out and dissatisfied. The reality is, is that there are a lot of external features that will set you up to be dissatisfied with your work and hopefully over time that those systematic changes will occur whereby 
there will be less likelihood of you being dissatisfied with your work. However, much of the difference of the people who are satisfied rather than dissatisfied is their own internal perspectives and how they look at the world. We all know that one person who is a physician who works just as hard as everybody else, but always has a good outlook and they seem to enjoy their work and, you know, are, are as far from burnt out as you could possibly imagine. And it's your internal compass that will guide you best. Embrace your passions. Make sure that you have set yourself up to deal with the challenges as best as possible. Surround yourself with um, a really good support network of colleagues, of family and friends. And know, and I think this is something that I always advise, get yourself a mentor. Find somebody who can be your sounding board. And when times are tough, that you can actually go to them and get advice. And that's what I've learned is that you find that you're not alone. You'll find that everybody struggles at these points, but they will give you a framework and how to think about these problems and how to move beyond them. And I think the external systematic features will always be there. You have to give yourself a scaffold of thinking as how best to approach these problems. And I think that's through mentorship, through colleagues and a support network around you, and certainly read beyond your profession. Read as many philosophy books as possible. That will change your world. What's, what's your go-to book? The, the book, uh, I have many of them. The, the book that I try and read at least every six months is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Great book. Um, I think it's, it's one of the most powerful books, and I think every human being on the planet should be um, encouraged to read it. And what the story is, in, in, kind of, in, in essence, is, is his journey through the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And it's not a recollection of how horrible the actual time was, and, and then a comparative assessment of, well, I went through a horrible time, so you're going through a less horrible time, you should be happy. It's not that at all. It's about not looking at your past as something that will dictate your present or future. It's about looking at where you are now and that you have the opportunity to control your attitude to your current situation and to your future situation. And that is liberating. And everything else can be taken away from you, save your, your attitude. I think that was a ton of great advice, ton of great motivation. Where can people find out more about you and your podcast? So um, we have a website, thedoctorparadox.com. That's all one word. Or you can find us on Facebook, The Doctor Paradox. Uh, and indeed on Twitter, it's paradox underscore doctor. Um, happy to interact on, on any of those platforms. And, uh, you know, I think, um, I think it's, a, it's a great opportunity to, to link up with people. Patty, thanks again for joining us. I know it'll help immensely for the students that are listening. Ryan, thank you. All right. Again, that was Patty. You can find his podcast, The Doctor Paradox, on iTunes and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Go tell him hi. Go leave a rating interview if you like it. And go share it with other people, like I always ask you to. I do want to thank a couple more uh, students, listeners. I want to thank you for leaving ratings interviews in iTunes. We have Nature Elegance, who says a pre-med must-have. Scott Kid 189 said this podcast is the best. EE 
EE2MD, I wonder what EE means, EE2MD, says priceless source of information. And uh, SCHCR123 says a good one. I like it. Thank you for those ratings and reviews. If you haven't done so, you can go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes and leave us a rating and review there. But what you can also do, go tell your friend, go tell your neighbor, go tell your classmate, go tell your teacher, go tell anybody. Go put it on social media. Go email some people. Heck, go uh, go put some snail mail in the mail and, and uh, tell people where to go find us. That'd be awesome. All right, as always, I hope you get a ton of great information out of the podcast today. And I hope you join us next week here at the Medical School Headquarters.